So I am so excited to have Joe Block as a returning guest on the DealQuest podcast. Uh, and uh, the, the podcast here will go out in its normal audio fashion as well in a couple of weeks. But we are have been uh, uh, playing around, especially with return guests, of doing it live here on Facebook as well. Um, so if you if you join us here, uh, yeah, we welcome you. Um, and uh, Joe was my guest on episode four of DealQuest which at the time was it was called Fueling Deals. Uh, this episode will probably be, I think, episode 111. So we are more than two years later um, uh, after having Joel as a, you know, as, as a guest on episode four. So by the way, we're going to be talking about different stuff on this episode. The things that Joel talked about back on episode four over two years ago is still relevant. We talked about you know deals in general, investing, his hedge fund experience and Real estate investment, we talked about opportunity zones, right? That was when the new uh, tax law had yeah. come out. You know, that stuff's all still relevant. So go back. And also, um, back then, I was asking as an opening question uh, what um, his first business was. So you're not going to hear that here. But if you want to hear it, go back to episode four of, uh, of DealQuest and check it out. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to have Joel back. Joel is a futurist and longtime venture capitalist, hedge fund manager, which is gobbledygook for a professional investor. Uh, who lives in the Shark Tank world, like on TV. Uh, since he's his publishing company, uh, since selling his publishing company to a Fortune 500, Joel's keynotes expose Wall Street insights and the inside track on high-velocity innovative uh, innovation for better, faster, and smarter profits, empowering business executives and their teams to, to disrupt their competitors' future. So that's the formal introduction. My informal introduction is that Joel and I have become friends through the National Speakers Association. He was a L.A. chapter president uh, uh, previously. And, um, you know, we just, just have hit it off in, in the business and deal and speaking world. Uh, so I really want to welcome Joel Block back to the Deal Quest podcast. Joel, hey, Corey, thank you very much. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. You know, since you were on last, uh, I changed one of my opening questions. I had asked you what your first uh, business was, but now I'm going to ask you, what is the first deal of any type you remember doing, whether it was something when you were young or as an adult or is there anything that pops to mind? If I, You won't believe this. When I was nine years old, yeah. I, I was destined to be in the deal business. When I was nine years old, me and another kid uh, bought a, uh, a broken down mini bike from a, from a third kid Okay, and uh, for like five bucks. Yep. <laughs> and uh, this other friend of mine, his dad was pretty, pretty mechanical. So he helped us and he got it working and then we had a, a workable uh, mini bike. And then we flipped that thing to another kid for $10. <laughs> and, you know, money came out of thin air. I didn't really understand where it came from. I didn't really understand why we made more, but 
it was the most amazing thing that ever happened. And I was bitten and I have spent my life doing deals ever since. So, oh. I, you know, I don't know. That's that's fun, you know. I love it. And listen, you know, I mean, Joel spends a lot of his time in real estate, not necessarily doing flip deals, but but flip deals are, are definitely, a you know, a, a type of deal you do in real estate. So uh, flipping a flipping a mini bike, you know, is, uh, you know, <laughs> so some early prep for that. huh? <laughs> yeah. Listen, it's it's hard to flip companies, but you can flip stocks. You can flip uh, real estate. You can flip a lot of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to focus. So, so Joel, uh, this was not. Um, Two years ago, over two years ago, when Joel was on the podcast originally, he didn't have this out could be because he did it. He did it last year. Did it again this year, uh, which is which is this trend report you put out, Joel. Um, and I want to tell the listeners a little bit about it generally. Um, tell us. I know you have a favorite trend in there. Let's talk about that. And then I want to really start talking about some of the trends that you talk about and specifically how you think they impact deals. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh... Being in the uh, venture capital world, the hedge fund world, I look forward in time. That has always been what I do. Uh, I've always been, uh, you know, kind of on the uh, the uh, kind of high power, high risk investment side, doing a lot of these kinds of things. And uh, and so we pay attention to trends. And I've always kind of been a futurist. Always. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that and and I didn't know this until rather recently. Um, futurists are actually academics. They're, they're not really, uh, it's not really a field level deal. And I know this because I put a post in a Facebook group I joined for futurists. And I said, how do y'all know that uh, you're getting things right? I mean, how do you like know? Yep. And I said, Here, here's how I know. I predict the future and I've got a whole methodology about how that happens. I make a prediction and then I bet on it with real money. And if I get it right, I make a whole bunch. And if I get it wrong, <laughs> Not so much. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. And and I'm telling you, you, you know what I heard back on this thing? Pretty much crickets. And and people are going, oh no, we don't place bets. We're we're academic people. We're like university people. We're PhD people. We just sit around and think. Well, you know, uh, that's really what differentiates me from a lot of other people. And uh, and so we write trends, uh, the, the uh, clients of our firm, the friends of our firm, Corey, people like you, friends of your friends, so people who are part of this podcast. Uh, we share this information. People can have it. Uh, and these are trends that business people need to read. They need to understand them. These are business trends. Uh, it talks about how some of the big boys on Wall Street make their money. Uh, it talks about, uh, you know, there there is some deal-specific stuff. And and I just make observations about what I see going on around me. I You know, and, and there's a question at the end of every trend. And there's 29 trends here, actually. And uh, there's a question. So people who run companies can sit at the board table with their team and they can uh, talk about how they're going to figure out if this trend applies to them or not. You know, be before we get into the specific trends, you know, what you were saying about, uh, you know, futurists and people who make predictions but don't have any skin in the game, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting because obviously that happens a lot with all these, uh, you know, uh, experts on television who are predicting what's going to happen with the stock market, right, or, or particular stocks or whatever it is. And, um I had a client many years ago. I mean, it has to be probably 20 years ago who had this concept of actually creating a, uh, a, a product. And this is before anybody had even thought about, you know, there's some stuff similar out there. But back then it was the first one where he was going to actually track the predictions of all these pundits and keep their track record to show like how their predictions really turn out. Because these guys go on TV and they predict this, they predict that. And nobody, you know, nobody holds them accountable, right? I want to tell you something. This guy literally got death threats, death threats 
when when the industry heard that he was about to launch this thing that was going to track their actual performance. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess they didn't make a lot of friends, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, no. So and in fact, he actually not ended up not he couldn't raise money for it around the street. Nobody wanted to fund it. <laughs> they were all afraid of the results. <laughs> yeah, because right, they all so, knew what was true. Yeah, exactly. So uh, all right, so you have these 29 trends. Uh uh, and I know uh, in in a, in a separate conversation, uh, uh, you know, you had mentioned, uh, you know, we were on actually uh, one of one of my uh, uh, deal den uh, Zoom calls that I do every month, and and Joel mentioned you mentioned you had a favorite uh, one uh, uh, out of the twenty nine. Uh, you want to tell us about that one? Well, you know what? I actually I think I have twenty nine favorites. I, right, I right, think right. Every one of those is pretty good. Happens to be the day. Yeah. I like to talk about uh, yeah. actually two in particular. Yeah. One is the trend towards subscription revenue. Yeah. And the second, and that's that's an ongoing trend, and I think it will continue. Yeah. We can talk about that. But also, uh, I want to really under, understand and pull back the curtain on this work from home phenomenon and, and all the changes that are on the horizon as a result of it. Because there are companies, there are governments, uh, there are municipalities that are in for uh, the shock of their life, and they don't have any idea what's coming. And, and I'd like to peel back the onion on that deal a little bit. All right. So let's take the, the, the sort of, I think, easier one, which is, the, you know, the trend of the move to a, a subscription. And, uh, and listen, the easy, you know, deal intersection on that is that, of course, in every business, whether I mean, I see it in financial services when uh, uh, when uh, investment firms get valued based upon their um, uh, fee income, which is recovering re- revenue, which is quarterly, right? It's it's very similar to subscription model, right? It's yeah. it's, it's that, regular. That was that was put in place for a different reason, though. Uh, the whole fee revenue in the uh, brokerage RA, that whole business, uh, was sort of put in place in the early '90s because people in those days, in the early '90s and before, they were called stockbrokers. Yes. Now they're called asset managers, and That's the right. reason that they converted from you know trading stocks into basically uh, discretionary wrap accounts where they could uh, trade freely and have discretion and take a point or two off the top at the end of the year is because the stockbrokers were so bad at giving advice that so many people lost money. There were so many lawsuits that the wirehouses uh, simply wanted to get away from that model. It wasn't working. So that, the reason that they got on, they actually got onto a really good model, a better model, uh, but it wasn't for the same reason that businesses are doing it now. And right, but the effect, but the effect has been the effect, this, similar the in that yes. the value of fee income is much higher than the value yeah. of commission revenue. That's right, the, because it's recurring. So that's what I'm saying is they, it was a yeah. good move, but they did it for a different reason. They kind of got a yeah. little bit lucky, but they were forced into it for some other reasons. Right. Um, here's what's happening, and probably the best early example of this is in 2011, uh, and some businesses have been doing this for a hundred years, like like sure. the insurance business. I mean, so it's not like a brand new invention. But everybody kind of started jumping on the bandwagon after 2011. And what happened was that Microsoft in the old days uh, was in the business of selling software. And they have totally exited that business. And people are like, Joel, what what do you mean? What do you mean? They still make software. I didn't say they don't make software. They just don't sell it anymore. Now they're in the business of renting software. So uh, you buy their cloud account. So in 2011, uh, my guess is, and I wasn't at the meeting, but my guess is somebody from Microsoft uh, went to Wall Street. Wall Street probably said to them something like, listen, if you'll get off this transactional roller coaster that you guys are on and you kind of create some stable flow of money, we'll give you a higher valuation. In other words, we'll give you a better multiple. 
and your stock will be worth more because the revenue will be more predictable. It'll be better. And we'll treat you a little better than you're treated now, maybe a lot better than you're treated now. So in 2011, Microsoft launches uh, their Office 365 program. And the first three years or so, it really didn't do anything. It really was very flat. But by 14, 15, it really starts taking off. And all of a sudden, bang, it just skyrockets to the moon, 16, 17. Till now, they don't even sell software. You can't even buy it. And think yep. about think about this. So we'll talk about a couple components of this. One is in the old days, like I would go buy a copy for $250 at Staples or whatever place I went to. And I would keep that copy of the software for 10 years, you know, I mean, until they, they expired it. I mean, there was no reason ever to change. And, and by the way, I don't want to, you know, say anything that would get me in any trouble, but, you know, I loaned a copy to my kids and, you know, right, a couple of things right. like that. So, uh, and Microsoft knew that was going on and they really didn't have a way to stop it. They, they let you have five installations, you know, but that you weren't supposed to do it. It was supposed to have the same computer, whatever it was. So instead they said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you five installations, five separate licenses, 99 bucks a year, uh, go to town and you get every update we have. You'll never have to buy new software. We'll keep it updated all the time. So now you sign up for that. And in the same 10 years that I paid 250, now I pay $1,000. Right. So they made four times as much money and they're getting a higher multiple. So yes. take a look at their stock price, you know, from 2016 uh, until 2020, let's say Microsoft their stock price, I mean, the, the whole market probably went up 50%, maybe less, but their stock price went up four, five, or 600%. And let me promise you that is not a coincidence. And many other companies are doing that. And Corey, I don't know about you, but 10 years ago, I had absolutely zero recurring charges on my credit card. Now I've got close to 50. Uh, because I, I I just one day just start thinking, and, man, look at our $7. And, and, probably, and Joel, probably at least 10 of them, you don't even remember you have. <laughs> I, right. Yeah, or or they're not mine. They, they belong to my kids. Right. You know, I mean, we've got Netflix and Hulu, and we got Disney, and we got Discovery. I, I mean, I mean, we got every channel that every channel you got to pay for separate. Plus, I got all these business things. You know, some are two hundred dollars, some are twenty dollars, uh, some are seven dollars. It's it's just it's it's unbelievable. But everybody has kind of caught on to this. That's right. And to the point now where it's getting to be a little too much. I mean, I don't think everybody wants to buy every channel. I mean, there's a certain, you know, I mean, our cable bills, by the way, should be coming down because uh, the way that, uh, you know, TV is being sold now, uh, they, they've kind of separated all these pieces. But, you know, anyway, so subscription revenue is real. Uh, the yep. players that deal in Wall Street, the big guys are, are absolutely doing it and they're being rewarded. People that are doing small transactions and they're selling private companies, uh, they're being rewarded because the multiple on EBITDA is better for a recurring uh, revenue business. The That's stock market, uh, you know, uh, asset managers, Corey, you're talking about their multiples better. And and whoever's buying it is getting something that's got more assurance that it's going to not crumble. And right. and maybe another great example is, you know, these guys that sell. Um, and when I say guys, I'm sorry, I apologize. To any ladies who are out there, I just have it to have it. And I'm trying to learn to break that habit. But for for the men and women who are selling, let's say, uh, property and casualty insurance, automobile insurance, you know, they get 10%. That's that's kind of their deal. Well, it takes a while to build up 10% till it's a substantial amount, but anything that builds up slow falls apart slow. And so it, it uh, you know, it just, you don't wake up one morning in, in, during COVID and have the whole thing evaporate. Whereas a transactional business, right. uh, one day you wake up and it's just over. 
So I don't care what business you're in. Even if you're a restaurant, maybe you could sell the diner of the month club and get people loyal to your place. And they come back over and over and over again and they get a discount, whatever they get. Costco did it. I mean, they've got their membership card on January 1st every year. They wake up and they've got a billion dollars or whatever number of billions. Amazon Prime, uh, you know, they wake up. That's why their business is so valuable. It's not the consumer products division. It's the Prime. And one day, one day, Jeff Bezos said, you know, we're raising the price of Prime by $20. I think the stock went up hundreds, a couple hundred billion dollars in a single day. Right. So right. You know, it's real and you know people need so, to focus on it. And it's interesting. And I'm glad you brought it down to the level of saying, you know, because I think the question for our listeners, no matter what business they're in, no matter what you know size business they have, is how can they apply this trend, this lesson, what the big boys have been doing to their own business, right? And I've seen it. I mean, listen, I've seen it. I'll give you an example. Um, my, I have a dog, right? So, uh, there's, you know, there's a vet that I take him to. Well, you know what? They have a thing. I used to pay the vet every time you go to, to you know, uh, for a visit, right? Then they started doing insurance. Well, it, it, this is an insurance. They have an annual thing, which I pay now, right? It includes dental. It includes, you know, all of his checkups and it includes whatever, right? They just up the thing 20 bucks a month on me, which concerning it was only $80. It was a 25% disc, you know, increase you know, in a pandemic, right? And, you know, w- w- I looked at it and, you know, I, I, I buzzed them because at first I, I, I thought, you know, they, oh, no, they said, oh, no, we raised it. And what am I going to do? I'm going to I'm, I'm unsubscribe. I mean, I guess some people do, but I didn't, right? So, right. you know, so so, so my, my vet's doing it. And I'm sure you mentioned restaurants. That, that's an area where I'm surprised that there aren't, I mean, I've, I've heard of one or two here or there, but like if somebody said to me, hey, um, we're gonna we're gonna make you a member of our restaurant or subscription, you know, whatever or whatever they want to call it, a VIP, right? And, and I get to pay monthly, and I get I get a certain number of dates there. I get a primary table, you know. I get first, you know, to book whatever it is, right? You know, they they give me a, a free, you know, appetizer, a bottle of wine when I come, yeah, whatever it is, right? Flowers on your table, whatever the right. There's twenty right. things they could do, right? That's right. And, and, and none of them do that, right? You know, and, and, and you know, I, w- I mean, you know, who, who doesn't want to feel like they're a VIP in a, you know, in a restaurant? I mean, there's so many businesses that could be doing more of this to create recurring revenue, um, you know, that aren't doing it. And it's, it's you know, it's a trend well, that's I've, important. I've had uh, people call me and say, Joel, our business just, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work in our business. Uh, we're plumbers or, uh, or we make menu, we manufacture equipment, you know. Well, you know, Peloton manufactures pretty boring equipment, and they turned that into a multi-billion-dollar operation. Great you know, example. They got they got people paying forty dollars a month to, to watch other people ride bicycles and and exercise, and uh, all my kids uh, all subscribe to this. I mean, it's 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 the craziest thing. And so I I don't believe there's a business out there that we couldn't figure it out. Now that doesn't mean it's obvious, but obvious is not always good. Sometimes you got to scratch a little bit. But if you're a decent sized business and you're thinking about exiting someday uh, and everybody should think about exiting someday, uh, then I would think hard about, uh, you know, making some conversion. That doesn't mean you convert everything. But even right. if you convert one line, even if you convert one product, even if you convert, you know, just a little bit and you you kind of move in that direction, it stabilizes your cash flow. And then you end up with a cake and the frosting. You know, and the, the subscription revenue is your cake and the, the, the other revenue is your frosting and let and think about it that way, uh, you'll have a better business. 
And, and the thing is, obviously, we've been talking about it because we talk in terms of deals and how it affects high evaluations, things like that, but also yeah. just on a cash flow basis, on an operating basis. You yeah. know, you're, you're in much better shape. You know, it's much more dependable. And what, what, about for, what about for lending? I mean, you, you don't think bankers would, uh, would would have an easier time understanding? You know, like like like, like last month, you sold 150 grand. The month before, it was 200. Then it was, uh, you know, 175. And then it was, uh, I mean, they're going, well, how do we know what it's going to be? You know, how, how do we know? Um, how can we predict? How can we draw a picture of this? And 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 how do we take this risk? But the easier you make it for a banker, the easier you make it for anyone, uh, the better. Yeah. All right. Now let's move on to the one that you're even even more excited about talking about, which is this work from home trend and how it's going to affect things. And let's talk about it generally, and then we can apply it also. To yeah. This. Yeah. You know, uh, this work from home thing. First, understand the world has changed twenty or thirty years overnight. It just it just overnight. Uh, lots of things that uh, were probably ready to go and be buried and put to sleep here, uh, put to bed or whatever it is. They they just they saw their the end of their their reign this year. And they, they just a lot of things stopped being so, uh, and a lot of new things that were kind of working hard. Like I've been a Zoom member for four or five years now, uh, and, and a lot of us, like you and me, we've had it for a long time. But but the masses didn't all have it. Even most business people didn't have it. And they thought it was kind of a weird thing and it was very awkward and they didn't feel comfortable on a camera and blah, blah, blah you know, whatever. But uh, but all of a sudden now everybody got comfortable overnight and it's been a year and and it's not going back. Well, work from home. Uh, I'm not going to tell you everybody's going to stay working from home. That's not going to happen. But some people are going to continue to work from home. Uh, people might work two days a week downtown in their office and they might work three days at home. They might have an A team and a B team and the A comes on Mondays and Wednesdays or however they do it. Um, you know, or the younger people, uh, you know, a lot of younger people, that's where they uh, make a lot of their friends. That's where sometimes they meet their spouse. Uh, you know, so great things come from going to work. I mean, work is not all terrible. You know, I mean, a lot of in a certain way, work can be uh, fun. It's a, it's a place where people go to socialize and, sure. and be around other people. Uh, older people, for example, though, might have children. Uh, they might have pets. They might have parents they care for. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why it's more convenient for them to be at home. And so uh, there's a certain flexibility that a lot of bosses didn't want to acknowledge. Oh, it could never work. They don't have that excuse anymore. And they're going to be forced into some new work patterns. So what's the impact? That's my question. I, it's called SWIT. I asked the word question SWIT. Uh, so what's the impact of that? So if people don't uh, go to work, uh, let's say 50%, just to be a round number, it could be 30%, it could be 70%, you know, that stay home, go, whatever, doesn't matter. Let's say it's 50%. If it's 50% of the people, uh, what's the impact on, let's say, driving? Okay, so let's think through this. And you can, maybe you have some ideas and we'll bang them out right here together. You know, to me, the first thing that comes to mind is less traffic. Well, I'm in Los Angeles. That's a terrible problem. So uh, actually uh, stay at home. It's fantastic for us. It's, it really helps because our freeways are, are clogged up and it's a big problem. And, even, and we have these like six lane freeways, six or eight, sometimes eight lane freeways. And they're still it doesn't clogged matter. Up. Still clogged up. Right? <laughs> so that's a good thing. The second thing is that it's probably good for the environment. You know, a lot of these people who are very concerned about the climate, the environment and global warming, they're, they're saying, hey, this is a good thing. Less cars on the road. It's a great thing. Uh, but let's, uh, you know, but then I ask who wins, who loses? You know, so uh, the, the environment wins. Uh, Consumers win because less traffic, but who loses? How about uh, gas stations? How about oil companies? So remember that I'm a professional investor and I'm looking for things to bet on. So would I invest in oil company stock? 
I didn't say energy company stock. I said oil company stock. Well, I think demand on uh, oil is going to be soft for a long time because we're moving toward uh, different kinds of uh, power for cars, uh, and which, by the way, a lot of these uh, energy companies are going to help produce. So they're still in a good place, but there's some of them are really focused on oil. Right. Well, oil demand is going to be soft. I mean, airplanes are flying less. They're not going to probably ever, if in the next 10 years, fly as much as they did before. And by then, who knows what they'll be powered by. <clears throat> so uh, that's a uh, that's probably on the losing side. Who else loses? Right. What about speeding tickets? You think they're going to write as many speeding tickets? <laughs> you know? that's an interesting how, about one. Parking, how about parking tickets? How right, about, right. How about taxes on parking? So right. cities and governments can expect to have a precipitous decline in the amount of revenue that they collect. I mean, this is going to be a devastating blow on cities. So let's keep going here. So now, well, well then, uh, let, I mean, I'll throw out one, right? Because real estate is interesting because it's going to be affected, gonna, I think, in the, different ways. Right, you want to hold that one. You want to yeah, hold that one. Get okay. I'm just talking right. about driving to work for now. Okay? All, right, all right, keep going. Keep so going. now you arrive at work. Yes. And now the uh, company you work at, which had 20 floors, uh, you know, in, in your city, uh, probably only needs 10. And they're, and they're going to do this hoteling concept where people share desks. And so they probably can have the A team on Tuesdays and Thursdays and the B team on another day and they can share a desk. Yep. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of space that's going to be given up. So what's the, and then what's the impact, for example, on restaurants? Well, there's only half as many people downtown, half as many people eating in restaurants or half as many people getting their shoes shined. So there's this giant ripple effect. And uh, I run a mastermind of hedge fund uh, managers and because that's my, my business, my background. And, you know, I'm telling these people, listen, uh, this is not the time, you know, to, uh, you know, be positive on uh, urban real estate. Uh, probably better to go to suburban real estate. Now, that doesn't mean that professional investors aren't going to buy it because uh, buy low, sell high. Assets are going on sale. This is a buy right. low coming up right now. You know, that's right. kind of where we are. So, but, so, so, so let me follow that through a little bit, right? Because I want to drill down, right? Because because you alluded to something that is is going to say, hey, at least in the short term, right? Downtown metropolitan centers, et cetera, traditional business centers, right? Are going to have problems because as leases come up, companies are going to, I mean, companies are, I may try to negotiate out of leases, but certainly as they come up, right? They're going to need less space. They're going to, you know, reduce down, uh, right? So now there's excess space in buildings. So what do they do with that? How do they repurpose it? Well, they, how much of a take, hit are they going to take? Yeah. But then also there's this increased need in the suburbs, right? Or in the or even beyond the suburbs as people move further out. Right? Exactly. So, so let's so let's keep going because you're 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 exactly right. So that, that's <clears throat> that's the next place we have to go. We'll come back to uh, the urban real estate and the, the conversion in a minute because there's this okay. big ownership shuffle that's going to happen, okay. and the shuffle is really what. Um, is important for people who are in the deal business because there's this giant shuffle that's already happening. But so the money is not going to be lost. It's not going to, it's not that people aren't going to go to restaurants, but they're not going to go to restaurants necessarily in the same volume as they went in the urban areas. They're going to move that uh, money to the suburbs. Now, the people in the suburbs are sitting saying, gee, you know, uh, I hate working at my dining room table. If I'm going to do this for a long time, I need to get a bigger house. I'm caring for my parents, you know, I, whatever the thing is, I need an exercise room because I'm not going to the gym anymore. I just want to get Peloton and, you know, whatever they're going to do. So they want to they want to go from a three bedroom house to a six bedroom house. And that's unaffordable where they live. So they end up going, let's say, 100 miles away into the uh, rural areas or the less developed areas where they can get a giant house uh, for the same price or maybe sometimes and even less. And they're not uh, commuting into downtown five days a week, so they could yeah, they like, can maybe they're fun. not going to commute at all anymore. You know, they just tell right. the boss, "Hey, listen, I'm going to work from home permanently," and and so uh, 
real estate uh, prices and rental rates in the urban, uh, in the in the suburban and the rural areas are skyrocketing. It's happening already. I mean, I've been talking it about is. this for a year. It's already happening. Um, and then you got, uh, you know, what's going to happen on the conversion? Well, let's just take a building, for example, uh, right in your backyard. Where are you, L.A. or New York still? Because you, you moved uh, back. Right now, I, I'm in L.A. right now. I haven't been back for a year to New York. But in normal times, as most, yeah, most uh, listeners know, I, I'm back and forth. Yeah, you're back and forth. Okay, so let's say that the uh, CEO of one of these uh, giant companies walks outside and he or she looks up at their building. They're all proud of themselves that they control this giant piece of real estate and they're beating their chest about how proud they are. And then they stop for a second. And they think, God, you know, I'm really an idiot. I am really an idiot to be paying rent on the most expensive real estate practically in the world uh, to house 50 floors of people uh, when, when, in fact, I really only need to keep about four floors of my most senior executives and my best salespeople who work this territory and everybody else could move to New Jersey. Yep. So, of course, New Jersey is going to get a windfall. They're going to get, you know, lots and lots of uh, development money. Lots of great things are going to happen for them. But think about the tax impact and, and that city tax that they're not going to be collecting in New York. Think about all the people that are not going to ride the subway. I mean, it concerns me greatly because, uh, you know, cities are not prepared for this to happen. They're just not ready for it. They're not ready for the enormous hit that they're going to take. They've got this hard infrastructure that's not flexible, that's been built, uh, you know, 100 years ago for a certain kind of world. Uh, the taxation system is built for a certain kind of world. And the world has changed into digital currency, digital communication, digital transactions, uh, you know, digital transfer of assets. I mean, just all kinds of things that are different. And uh, they're going to have to think hard about this. Now, what's going to happen to this real estate? How's the shuffle going to work? Because there are, there are uh, you know, owners of real estate that are expecting to collect uh, rent and they're not collecting that anymore. You know, right. They have to sue to get their real estate back. And, you know, and there are investors in those properties, the properties that expect returns. Right. And, right. and so, you know, a lot of the, uh, the commercial people are not getting the protections that residential people get. So they're expected to pay. And a lot of these people are, are not going to be able to. And, and ultimately, uh, if there's no demand for uh, New York, let's say, and I'll just use that as an example, uh, for New York commercial office space, uh, what might happen is there might be conversion to high-end residential or something like that, you know, that uh, where, you know, uh, you know, where somebody could get a nice spacious place for some millions of dollars and, and it'll just be a different kind of an ownership structure that would uh, would take place. They probably wouldn't be rentals. They'd probably be condos you know, or something, you know, however they do it. But there's lots of things. Let me just uh, give one more example. Let's look yeah. at restaurants. Restaurants. Well, actually, actually, wait. Before we move to restaurants, I want to I want to say something uh, on the conversions. I mean, uh, we've seen that, right? Because, for example, um, I had an office down on Wall Street uh, from 1985 to 2000. Okay, in the early 90s, when the market was super soft, right? That was recession time. Super soft downtown real estate. They there were all kinds of vacancies. What happened? Even right on Wall Street. There were residential conversions that went on da downtown. I mean, when I started working down there in the 80s, there was no residential. I mean, you know, you, you would basically, you know, um, you know, finish with business and either have to order in food. There were a couple of couple of business restaurants. You know, they were the steakhouses for the business guys, whatever. But that was it. You know, there wasn't an infrastructure down there. There was nothing. Right. You would have to take a car home. And, and, and that started happening in that downtime. And that was less of a permanent. Right fundamental shift yeah. that was just that, a that, was, that, was an, that was an economic swing that's this right. is not an economic swing this is that's, a change this that's is what a i wanted pattern. to contrast it's a pattern change yeah yeah 
So again, continue, Joel. I just wanted because because it even happened then when it was when it was just a, a swing, and now it's such a patent change. So it's interesting to see. So yeah. in case you're going to yeah. go to restaurants. So the the you know the last example, and maybe before I go to restaurants, let's okay. talk about the, where this is already happening. Yes. Um, companies like Dunkin' Donuts, they had to close 600 stores because the pattern of consumers changed. Normally, parents who drive their children to school would stop in. Uh, buy a donut, buy a cup of coffee, sit with their their friends, whatever they do, and I, I don't know, you know, whatever the pattern was. But there was a pattern that Dunkin' Donuts—that's where they made their money—is from those kinds of people. Well, yes. the pattern changes. Uh, children don't go to school now. Children are going to continue; they're going to go back to school, and that will resume. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't resume, uh, because that social behavior will continue someday, hopefully uh, within the next six or nine months. But uh, but let's say, for example, uh, so uh, Dunkin' closes six hundred stores. And then they still couldn't uh, make it. They had to put them up for sale and they were bought by Arby's. I mean, that's, you know, that already happened. Let's look at the cruise ship companies. And so that's an ownership shuffle, by the way. Now Arby's owns Dunkin' instead of whoever owned it before. Okay. So that's a different deal. Uh, Carnival Cruise Line, they own all these ships all over the world. Uh, They can't bring in any revenue. How are they going to survive? What are they going to do? They're burning $500 million a month. How long can that continue? Right. Until they're until they're almost worthless. It surprises me that their stock value is 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 anything. I mean, it just surprises me. But the long and the short is that uh, dumb, you know, that uh, Carnival Cruise, uh, if they get to a certain point where they're too low, some uh, private equity company, not necessarily an American company, by the way, uh, Carnival's not going to go away. But some other company is going to come buy the shareholders out and they're going to have a much lower basis. They're going to be in this company. Instead of being into it for fifty billion, they're going to end up being into it for ten billion, and and it'll be a, a whole different kind of a financial structure. Yeah, yeah. So so obviously, I mean, listen, there's always big players that take advantage of right when things when things go way you know way down. Yeah, so that that's what happens. Yeah. So so question for you. So you know how do you know? So I think it was easy for or easier for for at least theoretically for listeners who run small and medium sized businesses. Uh, to look at how they could maybe uh, brainstorm about recurring revenues subscription model. How can this trend that the bigger boys are definitely going to take advantage of and have to deal with, uh, you know, how can medium-sized companies, smaller companies, whatever, what should they, what should they be looking for in terms of how this impacts their business and how they can take advantage of it actually, and, you know, and, and do some deals to make money. Well, there's two sides of this, you know, I mean, there's the buy side and there's the sell side, there's the winners and there's the losers. Yeah, and you got a little background noise on your line. I don't know what's going yeah, on. It's, yeah, keep going though. Something outside, but uh, yeah. okay, uh, got it. It'll be done in a minute. Yeah. The um, there's winners and there's losers. There's there's going to be people who are on the gain and the on the, on the other side. Yeah. So we'll take. That's why I say restaurants because this is a great example. Okay. Um, lots of restaurants, through no fault of their own, are going broke. They're they're just they're just going to be wiped out of business because they lost their whole clientele because the government shut them down more or less. Yes. Well. The landlord kicks them out of the store. They're going to have a perfectly nice shell. It's they, they didn't go out of business because of poor management, because they didn't have a clientele. They didn't go out of business for any bad reason. Everything is still excellent, but the landlord wants their uh, they want their money and they want if or they want their space back. Yes. So this pandemic ends sometime soon, and ultimately uh, the landlord then releases it to another restaurant, another restaurateur. So this guy is going to buy uh, the space, uh, you know, probably with a beautiful shell with all of the equipment. Uh, because the equipment leasing company is not going to take it all back. I mean, I don't know what they do. They may settle or something, but whatever. They're not going to remove all that equipment. It's just, they have no use for it. So they'll figure out some uh, something to do. 
but the new person's going to come in and they're going to get for pennies on the dollar, this beautiful shell with a clientele that's starving to come back to a restaurant. Right. And, and so somebody's going to get a real sweet deal and somebody is going to really kind of end up on the losing end through no fault of their own. And that's, what's really sad about this pandemic is that, um, this isn't one of these situations where uh, you're bankrupt because you were bad in business. This right. is one of these situations where through no fault of your own, you're just washed out. And that's kind of why I thought the government really needed to do more. And they didn't do very much. Uh, they've, they've done incredibly little, actually, uh, which is quite disappointing. I think the deep pocket really needed to uh, you know, be there. And I'm not a big fan of government intervention, all these things. But in this particular financial emergency, uh, I think the government, because you're either going to put it on the government or you're going to put it on retirees and older folks, let's say, that, that own apartment buildings. And, you know, uh, why should they absorb uh, the rental loss? You know, it, it's not their fault. I mean, you know, and yep. so anyway, anyway, so that's and, that's kind of a, the work from home thing kind of a, in a yeah. And, you know, you're right. I, I, and, you know, following through that restaurant example, not only are they going to get uh, the space, you know, the equipment, whatever pennies on a dollar. But they're they're going to get a probably a lower um, rental rate from that landlord than the than the last guy had. Yeah, listen, because, because the market's you know, suppressed. Yeah, um, so so they get to start, and you know, and uh, yeah, which is why listen, I've said this, listeners, uh, you know, you've heard me saying this for uh, you know a couple of years now on the podcast that you know, and and again, usually I'll talk about just recessions, right? Who who knew before this that you know these are permanent changes? But you know, I mean, that's why there's there's actually huge opportunities in down markets, right? Because those kind of things happen. And if you're in a position, and it, and here's the interesting thing, Joel, I want I want I want to get your input on this because I've been talking about not that I you know a lot of people have been talking about, but I've been talking about the impact of this what they call in the K economy, right? Where you have you have uh, on the downstroke. Right. You have all these businesses like restaurants, like some retail, like a lot of that are really struggling. But then there's an upstroke in this economy. A lot of my clients, most of my clients in financial services are not only doing not struggling, but they're actually doing phenomenally. Right. Tech. There's a lot of companies in tech, logistics, distribution. You know, right. There's all these, you know, there's actually this real dichotomy in this economy where there are industries that are doing really, really well. And then some that are suffering, which means that. Um, unlike a, uh, like, for example, the global financial crisis, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, which was pretty broadly hit, you know, businesses, real estate, all this stuff, you actually have sectors that are that have money that are doing well, which means that they're sitting, you know, there's a lot of folks who are sitting in, in a place to be able to take advantage of these opportunities from all the folks who are suffering. So, um, you know, I'm curious as to, you know, you, any other thoughts you have on that? Because well, yeah, it's, listen, it's we, a different we've scenario. Been, yeah, we've been, we've been telling our uh, hedge fund managers uh, you know, assets are going on sale in 2021. I mean, people cannot continue to have a reduced income, reduced revenue uh, month after month after month for six, 12 or 18 months. They just can't do it. Some people go for three or six months. It's a rare business. I mean, Hertz, uh, it didn't take them but but a couple of months to uh, claim bankruptcy because uh, they were paying $70 million a month for their line of credit for the 500,000 cars that they have. And they just said, listen, we're not going to burn up all our money uh, when people aren't renting our cars and, you know, so they, you know, they may end up going on the chopping block. Who knows what happens? I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a long time coming and you could probably explain that deal better than me, but it's uh, you know, this is, this is a hard time. And I feel badly for people who lose because uh, there are people who are going to, you know, make on other people's, uh, you know, misfortune, which is a shame, but, uh, but it's the reality. So, you know, what I would tell you is if you're, uh, if you're somebody who has the ability to gather up resources and funds, I mean, one of the things that our firm does is we build funds and syndication structures and so forth. 
uh, and we counsel people on how to buy these assets, um, this is the time to start buying assets. If, uh, you know, if you're not in a position to do that, uh, you know, then hopefully you're not going to be one of the people that gets burned. But a lot of money is going to change hands here in the next, uh, you know, year or two uh, at the big company level and the little company level. And every one of those things is going to be a deal. They're all yeah. deals, every, whether they're small or big, uh, whether they're valued, uh, you know, one way or another, money and businesses and property and title is going to be changing hands. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. There was an article, I think, what's the guy's name? James Altucher or something who wrote something about how New York's dead. Like he's a New Yorker. New York's come back a million times. And, you know, but this time New York is going to be dead. Right. Um, And, you know, then, of course, there was all this backlash to that to say New York's, you know, one of the you know major cities, international cities always finds a way to reinvent itself or whatever. What's your view on that? Well, um, I would never say New York is dead. I, I love New York and I would never say it's dead, but New York is, is in for a huge change. And if it doesn't have a uh, strong leadership, uh, it's going to e- be even in more difficult uh, situation because not only have a lot of people moved away, a lot of their tax base has moved away. A lot of their wealthy people, the people who leave are the people that have options. The people that have options that That's do right. have money. And, and so, you know, what States are trying to do is they're coming up with this new, uh, this new kind of tax. I, I, I forget what they call it. Pied. It's, it's like, wherever you are tax, you know, so, uh, you know, they're going to try and tax all these companies that moved to Florida that used to be in New York that maybe you have a few people left in New York. Uh, they're going to try and tax all their money for the whole United States. I don't know if the Supreme court will allow such a thing. He's going to have nexus ar- around those people. Yeah, exactly. But they're trying everything they can and they really need to rethink the whole tax system needs to be rethought. And these States and these municipalities are just not thinking uh, clearly about this. Let's say autonomous cars, same thing. Uh, there's going to come a time when there just aren't going to be that many traffic tickets and they're not going to, there's just not going to be speeding tickets because we're not going to be driving hardly too much, you know? Um, And there's going to be a time when, uh, you know, maybe we don't need uh, the subway system the same way. I'm not saying we don't need it, but maybe it needs to be different. And they, and they can't charge $10 a ride. I, you know, well, okay, well, there's one fifth as many people, so we're going to multiply by five the the price of the, of the yeah, ticket. It's not, not going to work. It's not, not going to work, work, right? So they have to figure out some things, and they're not figuring this out. And uh, these are very complex problems. So New York is never going away. New York is a wonderful place. But uh, if it doesn't get some great, strong leadership, and we don't have great, strong political leaders either on either side of the aisle. I don't care where you are. These people are uh, rather self-centered and selfish, and that's not good. All right, so let's uh, we're coming to the end, but let's see if we can sneak it. Is there one more trend you want to talk about that might have an impact on on deals uh, in your out of your twenty nine? Let's talk about uh, there's two that kind of work in tandem. Uh, one's called money follows expertise, yep, and the other one is called uh, up your game. Okay, so money, money follows expertise is is directed at people. People, uh, you know, have to be as expert and as best they can. They have to continue to educate themselves. The more educated, the better you are, the more money you're going to make and the more money you're going to be worth. Jacks of all trades in this economy are not doing well. 
And that's really important. Now think about why. Um, you know, when you uh, work for a company, uh, companies now with this work from home thing, they can select employees from anywhere around the country or around the world, as long as the time zone and the languages and everything kind of work out. Yep. Uh, so employees really need to be the best they can be. But on the other hand, the flip side of that is that companies need to continue to up their game because the best employees can work for companies anywhere in the or country, and anywhere or around or the world. So yep. you have this whole new level of competition for the best people. So let's say you're located in a somewhat small town and it's really hard for you to recruit the, the best sales talent because maybe the best sales, ta sales talent doesn't want to relocate their family to, to your community. I mean, you know, if you're from a big city, you probably don't want to go to a littler place. A lot of people don't want to do that. Some people do, but a lot of people may not. Well, uh, now the littlest companies, if they're willing to shell out some money, uh, can uh, can hire the same exact quality as anybody else. I mean, the, the playing field has been leveled in a whole new way, but uh, those companies uh, are going to have to be great companies and they're going to have to be better. They're going to have to offer better packages, whatever that means. They're going to have to be more uh, reasonable, more accommodating, more uh, diverse, whatever whatever their uh, the needs are, whatever people want, they're going to have to be all those things if they want to get the very best people. And it's, it's a very uh, complicated situation, but these two things work together. And who are the winners? Who are the deal makers that are going to win? Recruiters. Recruiters are going to win because if you're a company and, and you've got a 20-mile radius, you probably can keep track of who's in your neighborhood that, right. that you want to get. You know your competitors. You know which salesperson. You know which executive works at another company. You want to get your hands on that person. But you don't know everybody across the United States even in your same industry. And maybe sometimes you want to bring somebody from outside your industry. So I think professional recruiters uh, stand to do very well because the needs for uh, for both uh, employees and employers uh, has gone up a notch in a way that has not happened before. So uh, I just I just see a lot of exciting trends. And by the way, this may all sound terrible. A lot of, you know, I hope that I don't make it sound negative because <laughs> I think the world's going to be so much better off a couple of years from now. Uh, we're doing this like cleansing that is painful and it's, it's, it's like, it's like survival of the fittest. It's evolution. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the vultures are picking up the carcasses from the, from the streets. I, I mean, and that's ugly, but that's what nature is. And, and the nature of business uh, is we're moving. And so there's going to be winners going to be losers. It's going to be an, a, a, not a fun time for a while, but when we get on the other side of this, New York is going to be a better place. It's going to be more trim. It's going to be more fit. It's going to just it's going to run better. Uh, governments are going to be forced to provide provide better services. Companies are going to be better. Employees are going to be better. And, uh, you know, uh, that's that's it. I mean, I think it's an uplifting message kind of delivered in kind of in an, in an ugly wrapped box. <laughs> yeah. And listen, and, you know, anytime there's a significant transformation or change, right, it's not, you know, anything that's beyond incremental. And we are in a, a time of significant change that has been you know, like you said at the beginning of the interview, forced and accelerated significantly, there's going to be pain. And I don't want to say that in a, in a in an offhand way and not not to, you know, because as you've expressed, it's 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 sad, especially for folks who are impacted by by it. I mean, not that it's not sad when somebody goes out of business because they mismanage their company because it's still sad for their family and their kids and whatever the struggle they go through. You know, but it, but at least it was their own doing, right? You know, now, like you said, you know, people are just at the at the effect of something that the, you know they have, let's say, less control over. I think ultimately we always can be innovative and whatever, but obviously some of us have have more 
capacity, ability, freedom, financial resources, or whatever to be able to be, you know, to be able to do that. Um, so there'll be pain, but I agree with you, you know, and, and I think even for people, I mean, listen, you know, I have, you know, we won't, you know, we could spend an hour talking about this alone, so we won't, but you know, like I, I've always had a management style and we, and we set up, you know, my firm for over five years now has been, everybody can work from wherever they want. Like we were ahead of the curve because I fundamentally come from a management style where I hire great people. I trust them. Okay. I have accountability systems, right? I hold them accountable for results, but I don't hold them accountable for whether they're at the desk at 2.22 in the afternoon, yeah. uh, you know, or whether, you know, you know, or I'm checking whether they sent that email, you know, like I hold them accountable for results. I treat them as professionals. And I think that's the way with this, you know, work at home trends and these other things that you know, this is going to need to move. Let me just insert though. Uh, you have to be a rather mature person to work at home. Yes. And, and, you know, not everybody uh, is equally mature. I mean, if you need to be supervised, and there is a huge swath of our population that just does better. They're soldiers. They're told what to do. They're told what time to show up. They work at a company. They're given a paycheck. Um, this is not making fun of anyone, but not everyone is equally well suited to work independently. And you remember, you know, even in school, there's some children that work independently and there are other children that need to be supervised. Yeah. And, and our schooling system, yeah. this is, it's terribly broken. We aren't educating children uh, to be independent thinkers. We, we educate people. The system hasn't changed in 200 years. I mean, right. it's, you know, the, the kids still sit in rows with like little chairs and, you know, and they're, it's very military and, and they're, it's, it's, they're trained to come out and work like a soldier in somebody's company, almost like it was the beginning of the industrial revolution. Uh, the world has changed. Education is not keeping up with it. Uh, the taxation system is not keeping up with it. The political system is going to really struggle. Uh, it's not keeping up with it. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of the things that we're seeing are a reflection of, of some of these problems. The cracks in the system are going to get big and we're going to have to really be on top of this or we're going to have some problems. So I, I agree. And at the same time, I also know you and I agree with this is that, you know, the entrepreneurs, right. And the creative folks and the thinkers and the business leaders or whatever, who are forced to figure it out, who can't sit on the sideline, who are innovative are going to be some of the leaders in, in, in moving us beyond that to, you know, to, yeah. the right well, direction. you know, and, and, you know, many entrepreneurs had the best year they ever had last year because yep. they were creative. Uh, they, they don't have big legacy costs. I mean, we have a whole, one of our trends is legacy costs are a boat anchor and you have to, even the biggest companies have to start unwinding some of these legacy contracts and some of these really uh, big problems they have because it's causing them uh, to be uh, not nimble. They, they can't, they can't move around. They can't compete with uh, companies. You know, one of the things that I always think I, I work in disruption, you know, I mean, that's really the area where I, I work and I tell companies how to go on the offense instead of being on the defense. Well, if you've got all these terribly giant uh, legacy costs, you're necessarily going to be on the defense always. That's right. That's uh, right. You know, and, and you may not know this, but there's a couple kids sitting in a garage right now building a torpedo that they're going to launch and aim it at your company. Right. And, you know, and you may think, eh, it's just a couple of kids, a couple of silly kids. Yeah. Until they get $20 million in venture capital. And once that happens, then all of a sudden uh, they can do some damage. And then they get a second round for a hundred million and they mow you over and you're gone. Listen, it, all you have to do is look at some of the top companies in, in the world now, and they didn't exist 20 years ago. That, that's and, I, I, and, look, and look at the ones that, you know, that, that, that used to exist that are gone, right? Look at Blockbuster, Nokia. I mean, these these great, great companies that, you know, the, these world-class companies, you know, that, that just are gone. You know, and they, they just, they got, they got obliterated uh, by somebody sitting in a garage who had an idea 
and and the uh, these other companies kind of took them lightly. And that's you know, listen, a lot of what I talk about and, and a lot of what I advise is uh, related to how to you know either be the torpedo or the target. Which one you pick? One, <laughs> right, you know, right. do you want to be the rock or you want to be the dynamite? Pick one. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I am. And I teach people how to be torpedoes and dynamite. And, and that's what they want, you know, is that uh, it's a different way of thinking. Uh, they, they, you know, may kind of just be sitting around in their lounge chair and, but a lot of them are worried. They don't, they're worried and they're paralyzed with fear. They don't know what to do. And this pandemic, 20 years of change in, in a year, or, or maybe more than 20 years of change in, in almost overnight uh, has really forced companies to really rethink a lot of things. Unfortunately, a lot of them are not making substantial differences. They're making tweaks. They're like painting the house. They, they, they need to add a second story. They need, they need to do something no, totally no, different. Yeah. Bold they're, action. They're you mean. Paint the carpet. You know, it's, yeah. yeah, incremental changes. This is not the time for incremental changes. It's time for bold action. So, Joel, uh, if people want to uh, either get this report and they'll find more about you generally, where, where do they go? You're muted. If they want to get yeah. the report, they can take out their mobile phone, uh, put in the, go to the texting app, uh, put in the number 72,000, and in the in the message box, put in the word trend, T-R-E-N-D, trend. Very simple. And then we'll send the report to you. Uh, it'll be free. If, uh, if they want to get a hold of me, joelblock.com. That's that's the best place to go. Great. And, and listen, folks, Joel's active on social. He's got his own podcast. Uh, you know, check out his stuff. I love listening to Joel. Um, you know, he's always got great insights, uh, you know, uh, on, on big trends, on the inside track, on, on, on specific things. Uh, I always have fun talking to him. We have great conversations offline when nobody's listening either with, with a cigar. It's a lot of fun. Joel, my final question for you um, on the podcast here is um, my highest value in life is freedom. For me, that means freedom of people from oppression to freedom of why I'm an entrepreneur and I don't want to have a boss and I want to be able to do what I want to do. What does freedom mean to you and how does it affect your life and business? Well, uh, you know, listen, freedom is, uh, it's great. Uh, you know, I don't, that's not the word I think about, uh, for the last year, year and a half, the word I've really thought about is joy. Mm-hmm. I don't do anything anymore that didn't bring me joy. And, and that doesn't Love mean it. I like every minute of every day that I do, but you know, by and large, I don't work with people that I don't like. I don't do things mostly that I don't like. I, I really try to, uh, do things that I like. I and mean, that's really, you know, and that's freedom. I mean, I've gotten to the place where I can do, what I, what I want to do. And, and that's been uh, really important to me. The other thing is uh, I had some medical problems last year. I, I, I lost the vision, one of my eyes. And, uh, and one of the things that, uh, that came from that experience is that I couldn't work at my desk for a lot of hours a day. Mm. And cause I was, I was going through multiple surgeries, you know, to try to save the eye. And, and I realized I get as much done in a couple hours as I used to do the whole day. And, and I was spending a lot of time in, in my man cave you know, in the yard. And, uh, you know, and I was thinking and I'm putting notes down, I'm working on my book and different ideas and the trend reports and things, but I was feeling terribly guilty that I wasn't at my desk. And somebody, one of my masterminds, I I mentioned this and she's a really smart, smart woman and kind of a psychology kind of person. And she's, well, well, what are you doing? You know, you need back here. And I said, well, I'm I'm making notes and I'm doing this. She goes, well, that's your work. That, that, and she gave me a new way of thinking uh, and, and kind of, I stopped feeling guilty that, that I'm not working because I, all my life, I've always just worked, work, work. And, and now being creative is, uh, is I, I now have shut my calendar down. I don't take appointments after 12 o'clock. I only take them from nine to 12 and that's it. And then I spend the afternoons uh, doing things like this and being creative and writing and 
uh, you know, doing other projects. And that's what I do. Well, that sounds like freedom to me, my friend. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You know, listen, you work hard. That's uh, that's what we work for. Love it. Joel Block, thank you so much for being a fantastic return guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.